Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1477, entitled Matter of the Facts. Our podcast title is Pod Society. <laughs> I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And you knew I was going to call it. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes they're just such good low-hanging fruit, you've got to go for them. <laughs> yeah. Matter of the Facts comes from the... F- from the fact that when watching Masters of the Air, mm-hmm. I just thought it was very matter of the fact. Yeah. So there we go. So, okay, we're starting out with a look at a Netflix movie called Polite Society. Yes. So it's not released by Netflix, but that is where you'll find it now, streaming. So Polite Society came out last year, and I did hear a little bit of buzz around it at the time. So I'd been anticipating this one for a while. It's a British action comedy, but it's not really just an action comedy. It bends genres, it uses stylistic cues reminiscent of things like a heist film, a martial arts film, (laughs) spaghetti western, Jane Austen, you know, kind of marriage... Uh, marriage plots and all kinds of influences are going into this one. It's written and directed by Nita Manzor and it's sort of in the style that she's come to be known for doing various shorts, but she has also directed two episodes of Doctor Who. Yes, I remember them well. And this is actually her first feature. So some of the influences that she has described taking on into making polite society included things like Jackie Chan movies, Jane Austen novels... Tarantino, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, there's elements of The Matrix and all of that kind of comes together in this really rollicking, fun comedy that has some pretty kick-ass fight scenes as well to boot and a bit of a coming-of-age arc and something about, you know, sisterly love. (laughs) I love the idea that they can use the theatrical martial arts that one of the characters is aspiring to to fight with as well. Yeah, it's it's all like a little bit meta in some ways, but it's also not that deep in that it is such a beautiful, simple story, uh, but does manage to do quite a lot. It follows two free-spirited sisters living in London. Uh, Lena is a faltering artist who's just dropped out of art school. And then we also have Rhea, who's a young and fiery wannabe stunt woman. So she's training in martial arts and she makes various YouTube videos with Lena's help uh, under her sort of pseudonym, her stunt pseudonym of the Fury. So she shows off her fighting and stunt skills, hoping to catch the eye of established stunt woman Eunice Hutthurt. Isn't that an interesting uh, plot line there? She's not after, she's not trying for marriage or any of the other traditional sorts of things in a coming of age movie she wants to become a stunt woman so she's trying to get attention online with youtube videos and she's really just yeah trying to make her way there and also there's a little bit of the element of i mean she's in high school at the time wanting to keep you know her sister close wanting resisting change all of those elements still come into play but as we'll see in the film their close relationship between the sisters is tested when lena gets engaged to the rich handsome doctor salim much to Rhea's absolute horror. <laughs> it's really played quite well, the horror cues when she sort of finds out about <laughs> the impending marriage. They play it really well. Yeah, it's very Tarantino, that aspect. 
And uh, exactly. And from there, the plot unfolds as Rhea strives to find out more about her sister's fiance. She's very suspicious of Selim, his too involved mother, Rahila, and his general too good to be true aura. So she's desperate to break up the couple, and the sisters do end up going head to head. And their sisterly conflicts are depicted as a scrappy all out brawl, which is kind of just one of the juicy fight scenes that we get served up in the film. <laughs> He, he certainly plays as too good to be true. You know, he's 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 devastatingly handsome, mm-hmm. he successful. Dr- he's, he's a doctor. Yep. He's, he drives a, a terrific car. Yeah. He, yeah. He's nice. Yep, yep. He <laughs> seems to be really accommodating and sensitive. And uh, Rhea's schemes, you know, despite all of this, she still doesn't trust him. No. But, neither, uh, neither do we. As an no. audience, we just go, nah. We, we raise a bit of an eyebrow. <laughs> We've seen this play out before. And Rhea herself as well, she kind of, everything comes to a head in an eventual attempt to save Lena against her will from the impending wedding, whatever it takes. But uh, is Rhea just an out-of-touch teenager having trouble letting go of her sister and resorting to meddling that has no root in reality? Or has her snooping actually paid off and she's onto something? Mm. You know, and it can go either way. Okay. I, I feel like they leave that open for a fair bit of the film. Yeah, it could either veer into coming-of-age story or it could veer in a variety of different ways. I think it always remains at its heart a fun <laughs> action martial arts comedy, though. So, But, of course... The listeners to us can work out, well, we're talking about this on Zero G, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, we don't normally go in for this type of film if they do play it that that kind of straight straight and narrow path. But there's, mm. there's plenty here. Uh, it has a really good engaging fight choreography and, mm. you know, the, the required heartwarming resolution as well as a satisfying climax. And shout out to the Peter Anderson studio too because they did all the the typography and graphic design for the title cards, of which there are many. Yes, and very important part of the style of the film as well. Hmm. So as we said before, it really centres around two sisters. Mm -hmm. And we've got uh, Priya Kansara, who plays Rhea Khan, slash The Fury. So she's... (laughs) I am The Fury. (laughs) She's our aspiring stuntwoman. She's into martial arts. She's really kind of got such a lot of personality behind her and so does her sister Lena Khan who's played by Ritu Arya and together they're just sort of portrayed as these a little bit scrappy a little bit you know beat of your own drum but just really sweet sisterly relationship and both of them have these sort of aspirations so Rhea it's to become you know stunt person and for Lena it's you know she's an artist and she went to art school and really tried to make that work but where we start the film is where Lena has actually dropped out of art school and is feeling a bit lost at the start of the movie. And I think it's it's as much about their relationship as it is about anything else. We have seen Priya Kansara, who plays Rhea, before. She was in Bridgerton. She was also in a Netflix series called The Bastard Son and the Devil Himself, which I'd not heard of before. And I thought it was pretty interesting to mention that she did a lot of her own stunts in this. She did have a stunt... Um, a stunt person and there who called Erin who did her some of her stunts for her but she did a decent amount herself including wire work and she had a stunt team that was there supporting her but you can tell in some of the fight scenes that she's of the actress is obviously the one right in there doing some of the stunts which I thought was really just gave it this nice touch when you can see the actors are really in it and especially with that meta layer of the character wants to be a stunt woman so I thought that was pretty cool 
Yeah, she's Tom Cruise in it there. Yeah, exactly. And the stunt woman that she does, um, she really looks up to is Eunice Hoothurt, who I mentioned before. And she's a real stunt woman. She's done a lot of work for The Fifth Element, Titanic, The Avengers, uh, The Wolfman, and she does a lot of Angelina Jolie stunts. So she was yeah. in the Tomb Raider series that she did, Salt, and she's also done a bit of stunt coordination as well for films like V for Vendetta, Alice in Wonderland and The Rise of Skywalker. So she's really established in her field. But not actually physically appearing in the film apart from posters no, and but her, her emails and texts. Yeah, and her presence is felt. I, I think her voice appears at one stage. It does, yeah. it does. So that's we've got our younger sister Rhea there, played by Priya Kansara, and she's matched really well with Ritu Arya, who plays Lena, her older sister. So Arya also has some fighting stunt experience because she is in the Umbrella Academy. She was also in the TV show Humans. She plays an android in that one. Ah. Mm. And she was also in Red Notice, the Doctor Who episodes I mentioned earlier. So her and the director Menzo have actually worked together on those Doctor Who episodes. So they did know each other before. She's also been in Sherlock. And most recently she played journalist Barbie in Barbie. Mm. And she says one of my favourite lines in Barbie as well. Uh, So she appears in this as Lena who... You do also empathise with because she it's sort of a bit against her nature, but she's ready to settle down. She's ready to make the most of it. This is sort of a pathway for her when she's feeling a bit lost Mm. and it's something for her to kind of say, okay, I'm going to make a decent go of this. The art thing wasn't working out for me. And oh. she really wants to, to throw throw herself into this new life with, with this guy who seems great. So you can't blame her in a lot of ways. But, mm. yes, I think that that is the central conflict between the two sisters. I thought they actually managed to um, avoid some of the tropes that usually go with the arranged marriage sort of thing. Mm, I should mention that this is a film that's, that's heavily in, infused with Pakistani culture because it is amongst the Pakistani community. So I felt like I was watching a little bit of a, well, an echo, so to speak, of Ms Marvel. Yeah, I really think, and I think similar to Ms Marvel, the film captures such a lovely feeling of family and really just that warm family dynamic and support, obviously mixed with some of the expectations and things that come with, you know, a close-knit family. But I just, I loved seeing those supportive scenes and just how that family dynamic worked. And I think, again, similar to how you need to have good chemistry between the two sisters, you really need to believe that this family is there for each other. And the family is as a way into the to the plot line as well because mm. um, you've got um, uh, Fatima Khan, uh, Rhea and Lena's mother, and she's part of a, a Mahjong group who, if they're not the aunties, well, you know, whatever the Pakistani term is, uh, it's something very similar to that. It is giving a bit of like the crazy, some scenes from Crazy Rich Asians where, you know, mm. gossiping and also a bit of trying to impress other other women that she knows and I mean specifically we're talking Salim uh, comes from a very wealthy background and his mother's very involved so she also becomes a key player in this too. Oh yes the uh, uh, the uh, the mother-in-law the potential mother-in-law she's an interesting piece of work. She <laughs> is interesting a piece of work indeed indeed and I think the actress Nimra Buka plays her really really well she's She's got such a great presence, I think, and she leans into what the role requires, let's say. <laughs> I also thought two of the standout performances in this film 
was uh, the, the young actresses playing Clara and Alba. Oh, yeah. Rhea's friend from yes. school. So they're like her wingmen. Yeah, yeah. They kind of band together and come up with these little schemes to find out more about Salim and how they're going to save Lena from the, you know, impending doom of being in a committed marriage and that kind of thing. And I agree. I think there's so many great opportunities for comedy and they really... The film does its best work when it's being extra over the top. Mm. It really goes that extra little bit to crank it up a notch. Uh, just just returning to the the, the, the friends there, Serafina Bay and uh, Ella Brucolieri, um, that's actually a, a neat trick to be able to pull off. And I, I'm never I never underestimate that in a movie or in mm. a television show where you get two background characters. Yeah who actually really get into their roles yep. and have a lot of fun banter. If, so if you can watch this movie and just see what they do. Exactly. I think, And I think that's what's so great is that there's no role wasted here. Mm. I think everybody's really in it and having a good time. And I think it, there is a bit to go along with. Like you've got to ride the wave because there's parts of this that are quite surreal Yeah. and it's got a lot of energy. It's quite vibrant, but it, it goes a bit... It's a bit wild in a way. It's not. It's not what you'd expect on every every turn. We're being we're being polite here because um, there are some movies that we could mention that this reminds us of. Automatically, would give the game away. Yes, we want to keep that a bit close because there's some surprises in store. I think, which yeah, is fun. Yeah. You know, things that I liked about this movie. Mm. Um, apart from all the things we've mentioned so far, I love the fact that they come up with these. Uh, Phased plans to disrupt the marriage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then there's like three phases of it, and, and they're all ridiculous and, and, and over the top. And yep. you just think, are you really going to try that out? Well, heck yeah. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh, also, they, 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 they get into that old, well, we're downloading something from a laptop and it's just too slow. <laughs> yeah. I think. What I liked about it was there's a lot of nods and cues to other yeah. genres and, of course, you know, it's incorporating all these influences, but it still felt very fresh. Hmm. Like the voice and style felt really fresh. It doesn't take itself seriously. Yep. And like I said, the more it's leaning into how ridiculous it's playing things, the more charming it was. Hmm. And I think – and that's matched with some really decent action, like some great fights, some great visuals – all underpinned by like a real sense of heart and family. Do you know the funniest thing is the, the, the most bloody, most deadly, awful fights <laughs> yeah. between the sisters. And that and that was <laughs> deliberate. I think they were talking a lot about how that would be the case because, you know, the sisters really know emotionally how they would hurt each other. You know, they know yeah. each other so well. They could do the most damage. So it was meant to reflect that. And I was like... That's really clever. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, um, our, our 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 fury is trying to seem uh, <laughs> like the Avengers initiative will come up and have a chat to her at some stage with that name. Um, she's trying to perfect a reverse spin kick. Yes, <laughs> much to everyone else's shock because she can't really land it. Basically, drops drops out of the air so many times. Yeah. Uh, in, including in front of the school bully, uh, uh, an actress, um, Sally Ann, playing Edith. And she's actually note perfect too. This is the thing. All of these other little minor roles are yep. exquisitely and, portrayed. And sure, they're deployed in a way that's a little tropey, you know, things yeah. we've seen before. But like I said, I think it's just done such a well-pitched that you don't mind that, oh, okay, yeah, of course this will happen or of course that will happen or, you know, I think I think there's so much the film's doing that is predictable but 
it's fine. You know, and the sisters have a fight upstairs. They're, they're not particularly... They're, they're, you know, it's a London um, uh, upstairs, downstairs house and, and they're all right. They're, they're doing okay. And the sisters have a fight upstairs. And, like, it's a fight that could have come straight out of one of the lethal duels in Kill Bill. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> and, and, and mum just yells out something like, uh, I don't care who started it, just clean it up. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and and there's a few places where it does subvert your expectation for what the yeah. mother the mother character might do or say, and you're like, oh, that was a fun little mm. yes, you know. I I had as much fun watching this film, as, the same sort of thing as uh, the brother's son we watched. Yeah, the other week. yeah, yeah. Um, the stunt choreographer uh, or fight choreographer uh, is a guy called Rob Locke, mm-hmm. uh, and he has worked on he worked on Suffragette. Um, doing the, uh, the the jujitsu sort of stuff that they had on that, hmm. as well as a movie called Morgan. So yeah, I thought that they they did very well there because this is a movie actually. Uh, you know how we are on um, on fight and stunt choreography. It's an, uh, in a superhero movie. It's part of the language of the film. Mm. It's as much a character as anything else. It drives the characters. It explains the characters. It does that here, and it also forms an actual part of the plot, but it dovetails so neatly into the dance choreography. Yes, and the costuming as well, and the costume's done Mm. by someone called P.C. Williams? Yes. P.C. Williams, P.C. Williams. (laughs) Who who, who didn't work on... um, uh, any of the British police shows, probably, I hope. But that is, you know, when we're coming to our wedding, obviously there's some beautiful costuming done there, mm. which looks spectacular, both dancing or fighting. And I think some of those deliberate little attention to detail just meant you're just in for a visual delight. All singing, all dancing, all fighting. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think as well the you can see the fight influences too. Like I mentioned before, there's a lot of wire work. Mm. We've got Matrix callbacks in there. Also, obviously, there's martial arts and kung fu throwbacks. Some Jackie Chan stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think the fact that the actors and everyone threw themselves into it with gusto, coupled with the fact there was some real, you know, them doing their real stunts, um, mm. I don't know. I just I really enjoyed this. I thought it has a lot of heart. It's really fun to watch. It's high energy. And like I said, it was it was sort of trotting out a lot of things I've seen before, but the whole package felt really new to mm. me. And it felt like a very genuine voice. Like I loved seeing those glimpses into elements of the culture that are unfamiliar to me, but, you know, very standard um, yeah. for people who, you know, British Pakistani people who that is their life and that is their day to day. I thought that was really well portrayed. Can I um, be smug? Go on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if I must. <laughs> I, I feel sorry for how what would we call the uh, the 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 anti woke brigade out mm. there who see everything like this is a slap in the face, rather than an opportunity to expand their horizons. I yeah. mean, my gosh. I know. <laughs> And when it's done from a place of, you know, this is obviously the people working on this yeah. paid such close attention to depicting this in an authentic way. Yeah. And it's I, just a joy. I'm it's a science a fiction joy. and fantasy fan. I want to see things I haven't seen before. I want to move out there, you yes. know. This is great. Yeah. So, look, I give this a definite uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, agree, agree. I think the acting, the chemistry, the fights – Everything just really, really appreciated it. Mm. I thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah, for a movie about a, a person who wants to be a stunt person, person um, the blows actually land quite well. <laughs> <laughs>
everything lands. Exactly. What more can we say? That's yeah. Polite Society. It is streaming on Netflix now hmm. and highly recommend from Zero G. It's a, a solid yeah. Yeah. Another one of those movies we didn't hear too much about, but mm. we saw a trailer and we went, you know what? That looks like our turf. And I did hear a little buzz when it first was in the cinema. I think it was well received. So I'm really happy to hear it had some success and I look forward to seeing whatever... Um, Nita Manzor has in store for us next. Hmm. Triple R. Our next segment is Masters of the Air. Masters of the Air on Apple TV Plus. Nine episodes, two dropped now, mm-hmm. uh, one a week from now on. They started filming this back in England in 2021, pandemic delayed uh, events. Uh, which allowed them to polish it a bit further. Created by John Shiban and John Orloff. We know both of those from a whole bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shiban was the writer and producer of X-Files, Star Trek Enterprise, Smallville, Supernatural, Breaking mm-hmm. Bad, Better Call Saul. Wow. Uh, Vampire Diaries, a bit of aviation there, fantasy aviation. <laughs> Torchwood, Miracle Days as well. Wow. And John Orloff worked on Band of Brothers mm-hmm. and Legend of the Guardians. Remember that fantasy movie? So not many people remember that, but that had sort of fantasy aviation with owls in it too. Now, this is all based on the 2007 book Masters of the Air, America's bomber boys who fought the air war against Nazi Germany. (laughs) Deep breath. (laughs) Yeah, it's by Professor of History Emeritus at Lafayette College in Pennsylvania, Donald L. Miller. Mm. He's a US-American biographer and historian. Uh, New York best-selling, New York Times best-selling author, uh, authority on World War II and U.S. history, has often advised on historical productions for PBS and HBO, mm-hmm. and he worked on The Pacific with Spielberg and Hanks mm-hmm. as a historical consultant for that. And, you know, that's where we're coming from for this. Um, the Band of Brothers, mm-hmm. The Pacific, those big, prestigious, epic World War II uh, drama series that we've had before. Uh, this very much feels like a piece of those, yep. the same sort of thing going yep. on there. And to just to lay it out, arriving in England in the spring of 1943, you've got the US 8th Army Air Force. They called it the Army Air Force back then. Uh, the 100th Bomb Group, and they land in uh, Thorpe Abbots in East Anglia. So they're not they're about 90 miles from from London. There, they've got 35 planes, 350 crewmen for those planes, mm-hmm. spread between them. Their B-17, that's Boeing, 17 yep. flying fortresses. Um, presumably, they had the uh, the outer hatches all sorted out on that back in the day. Mm-hmm. And you and you think flying fortress? That sounds really robust. Well, they're actually basically aluminium and plexiglass. And, and this is this is might be unfamiliar because you know look I grew up in the era where we were always still talking about World War Two, yeah, um, and the, the battles and the planes and all the hardware and stuff and that kind of thing. To a modern audience, these are analog planes. Basically, yeah. there's nothing really digital about them at all, apart from your fingers, and your fingers could be frozen off with frostbite. Yeah. So you know, quite a. Uh, hellacious sort of thing and as they say they're trying to take the war to Hitler's doorsteps mm-hmm. in these not rickety but uh, but planes which you just think oh my god um, their early missions in the story uh, to bomb U-boat pens or harbours or docks yep. along the occupied coast of Europe uh, one to Bremen and one to uh, Norway and if you know the history the U-boats the submarines uh, 
uh, would go out from those to intercept Allied convoys in the Atlantic and other areas. So pretty vital to, mm. you know, to uh, to stop them from going out. Now these U-boat pens are huge things, reinforced concrete, unbelievable yeah, thicknesses gosh. of concrete, really hard to knock out. Mm. And some of those are still in existence today because they just can't dismantle them. Yeah, gosh. <laughs> So, you know, end up as being, I don't know, cinemas or <laughs> underground rave party places. But back in the day, this was the, the strategic and tactical sort of situation. Yep. And the Americans had entered the war and they needed to help out even more than just sending convoys over, which obviously was extremely important. Yep. And the British at this stage were doing night bombing okay. of occupied Europe yep. because it was too dangerous to do it in the daytime. Uh, for obvious reasons, you'd be intercepted by German fighters. Mm. Uh, it was easier to shoot at you with anti-aircraft guns from the ground. The Americans chose to do it in the daytime, mm-hmm. which was pretty much widely regarded Bold. as suicidal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and much is made of that. Okay. Now, that's still under debate to this very day, as many things are about World War Two, <laughs> as is, of course, the idea of strategic bombing. Yeah. Uh, now, they're doing strategic and tactical bombing, by which I mean they're trying to bomb... Uh, the Americans are trying to bomb a German military infrastructure like the U-boat pens, yeah. as opposed to bombing a city. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's very complicated... A moral and ethical debate there, and I'm not going to even go there. Very familiar territory to me, you know, uh, 12 O'Clock High was a, a movie set back in the day with Gregory Peck, and there was a television series. Uh, you might have seen Memphis Bell, which was about a, a bomber from that era. And then, of course, there's the Dam Busters. There's a lot of movies yeah. about this sort of thing. This is well-trod ground. It is, and, and well-flown over ground too. Just to mention that imaginary forces did the visual effects for Masters of the Air and they also used the volume for mm. some of the cockpit scenes. We know of that from The Mandalorian. Okay. You know, it's the, uh, well, that, that, that virtual digital screen um, room that you can get into. And that actually helps a lot with this, this film. So it's not just, you know, just filmed in front of an ordinary green screen. Yeah. So it gives you that whole three-dimensional effect. And that's the, the whole point of this in a lot of ways. You know, they're doing the whole greatest generation type thing. Mm. And, my God, the, the, the people in this are young. Yes. Such young people, you know, from ages of 18, 19, sort mm. of. Uh, if, if, you, if you live to the age of 25, you're considered an expert. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I'll get into that in a minute. But the characters in this uh, and the actors um, doing, I mean, you know, we've got all of this great visual effects. We've got... Costumes by the great legendary Colleen Atwood. So, you know, absolutely drilling down into those World War II things. And if she gets it wrong, she'll get so many emails and that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, so we've got... But wearing all of that, being in front yes. of that, risking their... The masters of the air. Masters of the uh-huh. air. Austin Butler playing Major Gail Buck Cleaven. Uh, he was uh, that actor was Elvis Presley in um, the Elvis movie in 2022. Are you familiar with Austin Butler? What's your... Um, I know him from these things, like he was in the post-apocalyptic fantasy series, The Shannara Chronicles. Yes. Uh, and he was also Tex Wast- Watson, one of the Manson family in Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He's been in DC's Arrow. Mm-hmm. We saw him, we both saw him in The Dead Don't Die. Yes, yes, true. And, and he will be Fade Ralph uh, Harkonnen in June, part two. I think that's, he is 
a star on the rise. I think mm. Elvis did a lot for him. I still hear little twinges of the Elvis yeah. accent in this. That, they tried to defuse that. Actually. He's trying to tamp it down, but I can still hear hear some inflection there. But he's he's definitely, I think, an interesting piece of casting because I know I've seen a lot of behind like interviews with him. He's looking for challenging projects, mm. and he also I think is keen. He's a bit of a draw with a younger audience, so I think it would be interesting to see whether him being in this has actually drawn eyes to this series that would normally not watch a World War Two epic from Steven Spielberg. I think Hannah Montana was in his career earlier on too. Could be. Yeah, yeah. he's got that young sort of. He's. Yeah. I think he's probably floated around the whole Disney Channel ilk mm. of actors. Yes. And, and here he is playing a, a major in the U.S. Army Air Force in World War Two, and he plays it very well. Uh, he, I think he's from Wyoming in this, or, yes. or something yep. like that. Yep. That's, that's the map pin that I saw, uh, and. You know, he, he does exactly what he has to do in this. He feels mm. very strong, strongly portrayed, very, like I said, matter of fact. But yeah. I like that because sometimes we don't need all of that additional stuff in there. No, you need like a nice calm eye of the storm in a way, mm. like someone who's just there, steady, pushing things forward. Mm. Uh, Callum Turner plays Major John. Bucky Egan, yeah, there's a whole thing about one being called Buck and one Bucky. You know, so there's a whole thing there. Uh, and he um, was uh, Theseus, the brother of Newt Scamander in Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald and The Secrets of Dumbledore. He also uh, was in the 2015 horror film uh, Victor Frankenstein. Oh. Um, and again, another person who is note perfect for this. They play two characters who are two opposite ends of the spectrum. Buck mm. is more sort of phlegmatic and, and uh, taciturn and, and very controlled, uh, but with a wry sense of humour and... Uh, the other guy, Bucky, well, he's not. He's no. like an he's like an Errol Flynn, basically. Yeah, he's a bit of a loose unit, this one. Yeah, swashbuckler. And this actually plays back into some of the history of the 100th Bomb Group, which apparently, what I've heard, were not the best unit mm. that uh, was in existence. They were from all over the United States. They, they did a lot of things in their training that was very unorthodox and uh, irregular and got them into trouble and stuff. And here they are off in Europe fighting the yep. Nazis, you know. Uh, we have um, Anthony Boyle playing Lieutenant Harry Crosby, Irish mm-hmm. actor. Again, uh, played Scorpius Malfoy in the West End and Broadway productions of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. But we saw him as Kevin Maxwell in Tetris. Yes, yeah. Yeah, remember? Um, we've got Barry uh, Keown as uh, Lieutenant Curtis Biddick. Oh, yes, Barry Keoghan. He's mm. also in a lot lately. He's, oh, he's, so much. He's get people, I think some people will watch this for him as well. Let's just say that. Can I say that he has a, a fairly sharp sort of uh, physical face? His features... He's quite distinctive. Yeah, yeah. He'd, he'd make a great elf, actually. But I just recently <laughs> saw him in uh, Yorgos uh, Lanthimos's The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Yes. Where he plays a very nasty young man in that Oh, one. yeah. He, he, he's made his name playing nasty young men. We saw him in The Green Knight, another film we loved here. Yes. But he was in uh, the Marvel's uh, Eternals. Yes. Playing Druig, one of the deviants, I think, in that one. Or as sort of an Eternal. It was a kind mm. of a complicated thing. But he's also in Saltburn, too. I think we he, see rather a lot of him yes, in Saltburn. Yes, you've heard, Rob. I have yes, heard. Correct, correct. And uh, he was also in Batman mm. as uh, the oh. Joker. Oh, really? Yes. Did he actually get much time? No, I no. actually feel like maybe he was either a post credit scene or a deleted scene or something similar. So poor Keoghan, he's, uh, yeah, but mm. his time has come. I think people are very backing him right now. Just as a further note, we've also got uh, Nikolai Kinski playing uh, Colonel, 
uh, Colonel Huglin, and he is actually the son of um, Klaus Kinski and uh, Minhoi Loanik. So, you know, so there's a few people in this. There's a Spielberg in there as well uh, as uh, Shudi Gatwa pops up. Really? Yeah. Really? Playing a Tuskegee Airman. Oh, uh, now I'm interested. <laughs> US military's first black pilots, according to what I read. So he's a fighter pilot, so we should see him like episode Haven't seen him yet, eight, Because we don't see American uh, fighter planes much in the early part. Mm. They did not have the range to go with the bombers. Interesting. So, yeah. All right, so I, what I've seen so far, um, the first couple of episodes, they really establish one thing that um, that some World War II m- movies or other dramas gloss over, mm. the fact that it's so bloody dangerous just flying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you can get lost in the f- cloud or the fog and collide with terrain or other mm. planes and you have to be in s- close formation with those other bombers. They've got lots of machine guns. Uh, but they're not very manoeuvrable on the bombing run and, they, you know, they're fairly slow moving when they're doing that. So they need to stay together to become this combat box. Yeah, Supporting yeah. each other. You know, not zooming around all over the place at random. Uh, so, you know, they can collide with their other planes easily. Yeah. You can freeze to death at the altitude that they're at. Yeah. Or you can get frostbite. Uh, you can die from lack of oxygen. And these are not pressurised planes. No. You've got oxygen masks yeah. at this stage. Uh, you can have simple mechanical failure of, of mm. any number of a thousand parts. Complex mechanical failure yep. from yep. The, the bomb sites had thousands of parts in themselves and were not mm. all that, you know, they were quite fiddly and precious in a way. You could crash on takeoff. And if that happened, then you were bombed up and fueled up. Mm. So you didn't often you're, walk away from gone. that. Yeah. You could crash on landing, coming back, damaged and out of fuel. Yeah. You could die on a practice flight. You could die flying the plane from one aerodrome to another. Mm. And, in fact, they scrubbed the first mission somewhere over enemy-occupied territory because of lack of visibility. And people die in that, <laughs> you know. And, yeah. and that's before you get to the enemy fighters and the enemy aircraft fire. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. Anti-aircraft fire, yeah. Gosh. And the, and the Americans are doing all this in daylight when you can be seen. Yeah. You know, so there's, there's, there's some things that you can just put out there as statistics. 77% of the men who flew for the 8th US Army Air Force were casualties by the end of the war one way or another. Yeah. Uh, they lost more than 26,000 men during World War II, just that unit, uh, compared to like the Marines who lost 19,000, which is not a competition, but it's saying it was bloody yeah. dangerous work. And as I said, they're also young. Yeah. You know, uh, here's the other statistic that just chills your blood. By the time you got to 15 missions, mm-hmm. statistically you were a dead man. Gosh. You know, so if you got to, you had to do like 25 or later 30 to qualify to be sent home. <laughs> so I was reading the story of one aviator um, who did 50 missions and there were people who did more than that. You can yeah. imagine what this would do to you physically and mentally. Oh, yeah, yeah. And all of that's portrayed quite well okay. in the show. They they did something with one of the um, the colonels in command of the, uh, of, of the unit. Um, he vomited up blood after yeah. talking to the... Um, one of the new guys, and on his desk was a little glass of milk, and you knew instantly that he had ulcers. Yeah, you know, which is a we now know is a um, a bacteriological you know, I did, thing. I clocked the milk, and obviously I clocked the puking, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's subtle things. Yeah, along with those amazing aerial combat scenes. Yeah, what I hope is that they do get into explaining because they're bombing people from the air, and yes, they are bombing Nazis. Um, 
but they all are also and I sort of treat them like xenomorphs in aliens you know it's fair go I know that's a terrible attitude but my god things that Nazis did and just to stop them is what you needed to do but also civilians are being killed too yeah. you know and I would like to, to, to see them explore that a bit because it's not just from the air. I believe that may be possible because some of these people are going to end up on the ground, yeah. the pilots, and li- likely to be on the receiving end of German air raids too. It will be interesting where it goes because, like you said, I think it's a 10-part series, something mm. like that. I mean, these are long episodes. They've got time to do take the story variety of places. It'll be interesting how deep they go and what they go deep on. And we still live in a world where death comes from the skies, whether in the forms of cruise missiles or bombs or, uh, or drone bombs mm. or all sorts of different things, horrible things. And it's, it's something that you need to, to think about. And there is a, a very large body of literature about whether it was the right thing to do, whether it was effective, uh, daytime versus nighttime bombing and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, so, you know, they can, you can have a, a further read on to that kind of frightfulness if you wish and i think audiences are well past the glorification of war as something that's palatable anymore i think that they're gonna have to be interestingly enough right tone you know not all of the movies in the 50s and this is the 60s too where they're where they're riffing off the vietnam war Mm. when they're doing world war ii movies as well so they'd already got quite a bit of embitterment about the war yeah the, the effects were being felt by that point really mm. deeply. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think for me, I went into this and it's exactly what I expected. No more, no less. Mm. I am intrigued by, like I said, where it will go. Um, but I'm not sure this is exactly the show for me, but I'm intrigued by it. We'll see. Mm. It's event television and it is historical. And I thought it was something that we needed to have a look at on Zero G. And <laughs> it will probably inspire the next range of science fiction, uh, space opera, movie directors. Mm. Uh, you know, they, we got all of our aerial combat scenes out of <laughs> out of, out of uh, Masters of the Air. Will you continue? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's only nine episodes. This is the thing they get you in. There's only a couple of you, – you two episodes in. There's only seven to go. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm actually between series at the moment because I finished off all of the other ones. It is kind of nice, too, to have a weekly schedule. I, mm. I, I kind of – I know that's old-fashioned can, can. I'm up for that. Yeah, I yeah. think, you know, draw out the tension a bit. So, anyway. Although I did binge watch Echo in a single day. That's different, <laughs> though. That's also paced as a binge. I think yeah. it's got to be paced a certain way. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.